Excellent. Well, um, welcome everybody. I am super, super, super excited. For in, I, I'm like, I'm almost gonna have like a adjustment. I'm just gonna mute you when you're not talking, so I can hear you're uh, sending an email or something. Um, the, okay. The, yeah. There we go. Um, so, all right. So we've got um, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Adam, had you you had not read this book prior to this. No, 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 not not. Uh, I think you gave me the the heads up on this like. Uh, a week ago or something like that, but no, I had not even heard of this book prior to that. Okay, and so I heard of Showstopper from Dan. So Dan, how did you, I mean, you really were emphatic that, that this is one that we all needed to read. Yeah, so I heard about this from Buckle Shaw on the Tuz list, and because uh, we were debating the endless debate about NT versus Unix. Um, and so Buckle had recommended this, and I read it, I don't know, four or five years ago. I thought it was fascinating. It was fat, and I, you know, I had known about this book for a long time. I have to say, I was resisting reading it, just because I view myself as like a Windows NT conscientious objector. Like I'm not, you know, <laughs> my my whole career was kind of defined by going where Windows wasn't. So I'm like, why do I want to learn about, you know, th this technology that I defined my career to be not uh, to be kind of an opposition of. Um, but Dan, you were really strongly recommended it, and what a book! Um, so, I think this is amazing on many different levels, and I'm going to use this kind of a, a, an entree to our, our our two very special guests here. <clears throat> um, so, I, I don't know what I was expecting, um, but what I found was a real time capsule from software development in the '90s, and one that I don't know if folks read the book. Um, if if you didn't, um, Cole, who's on here, um, has got a great like synopsis of some of the high points. Um, the book is remarkably personal and goes into so much. I mean, there's so many people that that the the book not interviews not just the the people but their families. It's incredible. And it gets kind of the, to the the full the fullness of the effort and the the kind of the fullness of the cost of the effort in terms of the impact that it had on on families and on others, and it immediately made me think back to to get to kind of special guest our special guest number one um, is um, it made me think back to um, my reading of the Soul of a New Machine. I know many of us have read Soul of a New Machine. Um, great book, amazingly well written. I had a blog entry a, a couple years ago after having reread it, and one of the comments on the blog entry was from Tom West's daughter, uh, Jessamine West, who's here. Jessamine, so great to have you here. And one of your comments was, hey, I'm glad you like Soul of a New Machine, but you should know that there was some familial impact to this that is not necessarily in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like to travel the internet telling people that, uh, you know, my dad was an interesting guy. He was a, you know, I really liked him. I got along with him. But in terms of being a dad, he could have been a little <laughs> bit more present been, in my life yeah. and not a big deal. Like I'm not, I'm not whining or complaining about it, but I always drop into the comments of every man's blog post because, oh my God, it is only men's blog posts talking about like how formative this book is for them and more power to them. That's cool. And you know, I'm over it. Like I'm a grown ass lady. My life is fine, but it is worth kind of pointing out to people that Tracy Kidder 
didn't write about the familial impact of that. And in fact, there are huge stories behind the whole thing. Wired Magazine did a kind of retrospective later, you know, like whatever happened to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there's a lot of stories uh, behind that. And one of the things I've heard that's interesting about Showstopper is it really does talk to the people, not just sort of the 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 main you know white male protagonist uh, that is right and and that is a good intro to kind of special guest number two who I'm just uh, I I feel very excited to get uh, G Pascal Zachary aka Greg aka Zach um, Greg we got you back on the internet for this I'm very excited um, thank you for joining us and uh, thanks for writing such an incredible book I would love to hear about when you wrote this book, because I think so many of us did have the same reaction of like telling these full stories. Was that how, was that your mindset going in? How did you end up um, telling those full stories? Uh Oh, (laughs) how we lost Zach. Hold on. Oh, back as a listener. He's back as a listener. He's a speaker. No, he's a speaker. He's a speaker. Do you have the correct stack as a speaker? That's an excellent question. Oh, I just saw. Uh, Zach, we can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, we got you now. Uh, He was there. Hold on. Is he DMing me furiously? Like, my laptop doesn't work? Uh, Yeah, maybe. Um, All right, hopefully, we can get those resolved in uh, in, uh, in a second. He says, I I lost my connection. Um, Okay, so hopefully, he can get back in. Um, uh, oh, he can try rebooting it, sadly. No, here's, here's... So oh, there you, we can hear you. We can hear you. Greg, you there? Oh, God. I heard him speaking, but the, the question has to be asked. Is he running Windows? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Rude. Yeah, you know, so the um, and God bless Twitter Spaces. I, I'm I'm hoping that he can get back in here. I the um because um oh so let me while we're kind of um waiting for him. So Justin, with the in terms of telling those fuller stories, because I think Kidder, how did, what was Kidder's process for? Do you know anything about how he was kind of embedding himself with that team? He lived in my house. Like, like there's, there haven't been a whole bunch of making ofs, right? Because this was in the seventies. And so there wasn't this whole like meta, you know, DVD extras track. And so he lived in our house on the weekends and him and my dad would go, can, can I swear? Oh God, please. Yes. Yeah, we can, right. They would just go fuck around and go sailing and do, you know, guy stuff but like during the week he would go to work with my dad you know he was like mr embedded reporter guy and don't get me wrong like i get along with tracy really well and have ran into him you know over and over you know over the years and you know he was like the method actor equivalent of a writer right like he would just get involved and what's the whole thing like he talked to like me and my sister and he talked to my mother but that just didn't kind of it, it was it, that wasn't the story well, and, I was telling. You know, it was a story about the guy and the project. Yeah, and you because it, it's almost kind of dismaying that he ta- that he did live in your house and spoke to you and your mom because you don't you don't feature in the book at all, even as kind of a passing mention. I don't think. 
Yes, I'm on page 111. <laughs> he goes bike riding with me. That's me. He doesn't mention my little sister actually at all. <laughs> and it's always been like this thing in our family, right? Like, well, at least you made it into the book. Not by right. name, but I am the, the daughter. That's me. <laughs> but there was another one, you know? Yeah, because he doesn't. And so, Greg, are you there? I can see the, you, you, you hopping back in maybe. Try to unmute. I'm hoping he can get there. Um, because, I mean, I think that the – so, Justin, you have not read Showstopper, it sounds like. No, Greg just uh, said he was going to send me a copy, and I'm okay, looking yeah, forward well, to that. Okay, it's, yeah. It, it, and, you know, he, he'll speak to this in a second here, but I think that, you know, part of, of his process was, as he said, I always want to speak to uh, people that know the people I'm talking to, so uh, family members. And so he – interviewed family members extensively in this book um and the uh and and as a result tells these like incredibly personal stories i mean adam i don't know what were some of the ones that that um that stuck out for you i think the the um i can't remember her name but going home to her to her family in montreal leaving her husband behind not missing him um, the, the erosion of the marriage sort of consumed by the work and sort of not doing the work to like rebuild those pieces. I don't know, like that. I, I think, you know, in the industry as, as like the pressures ebb and flow, I think we all kind of see those commitments either met, you know, personally or with friends or not. And that one really spoke to me. Yeah. And the, and did you make it all, the, I mean, I, I feel that like, I, I'm going to give a, well, it's kind of a spoiler. Um, did you make it all the yeah. way through the, the, the acknowledgements? The, yeah. which, so this is really kind of grim, unfortunately, but one of the, the characters that I felt, one of the characters that really resonated with me, not characters, one of the people that, that, that resonated with me, and Justin, this, this, this story will definitely resonate with you. They, the, the folks there are not able to to leave uh, and I, I want to talk about that in a bit too because th uh, there have been a lot of technological changes um since this this uh this was written but people couldn't leave they, they weren't leaving the office they were staying at the office until literally all hours until one in the morning two in the morning and then coming back at kind of eight in the morning and so you had um the, the and you had one guy in particular who um who actually had a a, a new bride um, and, um, and he goes by, by S. Somasagar, and um, he has his wife. Um, hey, hey, yeah, uh, I can hear you. Uh, yes, Brian, can we can hear you now. now? All right, let, let me just say one yes. thing in response to Miss West. Um, of course, I had read Soul of the New Machine. Okay, you are muting yourself, it looks like. So I think you might be accidentally muting yourself. Okay. Hey. Yeah. Greg, are you there? You can, there's the button in the bottom left if you're still there. You know, it's because my expectations were so high. Of course, we're going to be beset with every possible technical difficulty. <laughs> That's what you get for believing in anything. That is what you get for believing. In. I do love spaces. I do love spaces. It just I, right. I, I would I want it to be a little bit more usable. This is where the phone lacks in accessibility. I'm always hitting the wrong thing on the phone.
And amusingly enough, like Justin had actually bounced out. It was, it was disconnected as well for all that. I'm back. You're back. Sorry. <laughs> so the and, and I, I, I trust that that uh, that Greg's going to be able to get back here. Um, the so his um, uh, he is from Madras, from India and goes back home and marries. Basically, she follows him back to um, to Seattle and the, and she decides that like well you're not going to come home so i'm just going to come to the office so she just basically sits in the office with him while he works and i i, I felt it was like i don't know it was this really endearing moment i felt where you had someone who was in a new country and with someone she probably didn't know that well and really in, in just trying to take on you know take some agency of the situation and then what I was just gutted to read that she um, died. She was killed in a car crash shortly after the, the, the book was written, which was just, I don't know, I felt that was like pretty upsetting, honestly. Um, yeah. um, Greg, we can hear Guys, you. Guys, I'm, I'm back, Brian. I'm going to change the location I'm in, but are, can you hear me again? We can hear you again. Well, what I was going to say was, when I'm immersed in this team, I'm struck by how traumatized everyone is. And there were a couple of reasons. Obviously, Gates himself. Man, we cannot catch a break over here. I assume he's disappeared for everybody. Yeah. Oh, Gates is what? Gates is what? Yeah. I mean, that's like the ultimate cliffhanger. You're about to drop a Bill G story on us, and then it's like, oh, disconnected. You know what Twitter Spaces needs is a dial-in number where people can just dial in. Actually, um, Ooh, and we can call these webinars. Oh, that's oh. A, th- th- that's a good idea. Or, 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 or oh, some sort go. of software okay. quality control. Greg, we think you're back. In and out. Is in, in and out. out. Yeah. Not, not on a good connection. Um, maybe try uh, try disabling Wi-Fi or try turning Wi-Fi on. <laughs> Try doing whatever you're not doing. So the okay. So what's while we're waiting for him to get back? I, one of the things I, I definitely want to make sure we're talking about is because I do feel this is a time capsule. This book, this does it, it does not feel like modern software development at all. And I think that there are a couple of major, major changes. I think this book is actually interesting because it is kind of the last, maybe, major software project before a couple of megatrends hit, one of which is clearly the internet, and the other is open source. I mean, they are rewriting everything from scratch every time, which is a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, Adam, I don't know if that struck you as well. You know, absolutely. The the rewriting from scratch, and then uh, as you had mentioned, I think the um, like source code control, like modern forms of source code control, um, you know, really, you know, that felt very antiquated in a lot of respects. Well, so yeah, that I feel, and I, I would love to get Zach's take on this, but they've got like this. They they are trying to build the software, and they've got like the build lab where the building of the software takes place and people have to go to the build lab to build their software. And then if it doesn't boot, but I mean, a big part of the reason that these guys have to stay late and, and they don't know their schedule and they don't know what the impact is going to be on their family is because they don't know if this thing's going to boot or not. 
And if it doesn't boot, they need to find a developer to fix it. And, and it's like, wow, that is not the way software is done at all. The whole, the, the, the dawn of, this is definitely before the dawn of bring over, modify, merge, or distributed version control, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, Adam, I mean, you and I never had to live in this world. And boy, I, do I appreciate not having well, had to live in it. Well, you've never had to live in it, but I, yeah, but I actually did. Like when I, when I when I went to my last uh, a couple of companies ago, they were using Subversion, and like you could only check in as root on a particular machine. And I swear I'm not making that up. And this was in in 2010. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it it felt it felt like a time capsule then. But you're right. I think we we were sort of fortunate, son, to get the um, the the benefits of of modern day uh, version control pretty early. But you guys had Larry McVoy doing that for you, which was nice. That's right. And we had, I mean, and it came out of kind of the, the pain of having to, of, of trying to uh, make a, this more traditional model work. And Larry was the one who kind of broke that with NSE Lite. And that um, definitely ended up inspiring, um, obviously, Teamware. Teamware, I feel like Adam is like this forgotten software innovation like it is <laughs> yeah i mean but w i don't know how broadly it was used but greg are you back i see that you're 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 uh you know yes i've tried to get on again i'm embarrassed but i'm puzzled also well we've got you now yeah but no keep going i i don't want to no no tell the gate story tell the gate story the point is microsoft was kind of a joke software company at the early 90s it, it had Mimic, uh, Windows, DOS, Windows was cobbled together. Gates had stolen DOS. Uh, Windows was a complete ripoff of Apple. And IBM, they were riding the wave of IBM. And so even after standardizing on Windows in the early 90s, Microsoft wasn't considered a robust um, software company. So NT meant a lot to everyone involved. And unfortunately for Gates and Bomber, Dave Cutler was a force of nature. He did not, um, if you were back then in the early 90s, you didn't disagree with Gates. You didn't tell him to go take a hike. So Gates inserts a guy named Paul Moritz, who I've gotten to know very well since, and Paul was extremely polished. He had been the uh, manager of the Intel relationship with Microsoft, and Paul was from Zimbabwe, a white South Southern African who was extremely disciplined, and he could witness a tirade, a rage from Cutler, and just sort of shrug and say something like, well... So what should we do then? Whereas Gates at the time, I don't know if any of you sucked your thumb when you grew up, but Gates <laughs> rocked in his chair. I had maybe 50 meetings with Gates in the, in the starting in 89, and he would furiously rock if he was upset, and he would rock more rhythmically and slowly if he was happy. Now, uh, interpreting his rocking this was not something Dave Cutler was going to do because Dave Cutler was a real man and uh, real men don't rock in a chair. And so uh, the whole project was um, also different because 
Microsoft didn't build products at the time from the ground up in a sustained way. So when I immersed myself initially for the Wall Street Journal, I found a lot of people who were traumatized. And also, I had been very influenced as a reader by Fred Brooks, The Mythical Man Month. And so I was struck by two things that one, from a management standpoint, no one understood why someone was good at coding. It was a mystery to everyone why there was such a wide stratification of coders in their output. And then um, second, um, this systematic, um, the, the, the second, Fred Brooks had a way of conceptualizing bugs uh, that was very influential. You created bugs and you fixed them. And the specter was that you introduced new bugs when you fixed them. And there were projects that never saw the light of day. I had kind of infamously done a profile about Ashton Tate. And a verb had come out called esberize. People didn't want to be esberized by me because the CEO of Ashton Tate had gotten into this problem. They couldn't get out DBase 4 because they kept having iterative bugs. And it just got stalled. And in a, in a fit of lunacy, the CEO of Ashton Tate admitted to me he didn't even know how to use DBase. <laughs> and so it was kind of hard for him to figure out what really was slowing the uh, completion down. Did, did he tell, so, that, tell you that in, like, in a whisper? Did he tell you, like, look, I don't know how to use my own product? I mean, it seems like that's... I, I was pestering him in his office, and he was alone with me. He never disputed. He told me this. And the day the front page story came out in the Wall Street Journal, he was fired. So um, he was, you know, oh, replaced that day. And, um, you know, so you have to go back to a different era where there were not a few expensive software projects, obviously many for the federal government, some in the private sector, that were abandoned because people got into this um, you know, iterative problem where they kept introducing new bugs. And so um, there was a sense uh, from Cutler, Lou Perizzoli, that leadership of the team that these guys at Microsoft really didn't get how serious the process of building this battleship was. And um, in any case, I was struck by the personal costs of people. And I also am not an engineer, and I was socially oriented. And I was interested in this psychosocial cost of the project now greg was was this surprising to you because you i mean you also are in a, a hard charging field here where you must have seen lots of folks you know putting more time than was warranted into their job and less time than was warranted in their families but was it surprising to you or did you do you have an inkling of what you're getting into well i think the level of um anguish did surprise me and but it was a team of 250 people and I maybe met uh, consistently about 50 of them. So I did think that um, the cost wasn't unusual, 
but the um, emphasis on the part of people on the cost, you know, was. And, and so I, I think that um, I was struck by it. Also, I had a concept that was a bit different than Soul of the New Machine, where the machine was the star. And the premise was that the machine, people, the, the, you know, Kinner, Kinner doesn't know a lot about computing in the first place. And also he's coming up in Boston where, you know, the um, Minsky, the MIT, Wiener, that whole tradition in Boston was, hey, you don't want to end up as slaves to the machine. The machine was the system, the system you served. But on the West Coast, of course, that whole thing gets stood on its head. Personal computers were um, supposed to help you actualize your countercultural values. And so it made a lot of sense to Kidder, I think, to see the computer as the real star, the hero, and people served it. That is such an important distinction. I think the East Coast, West Coast difference is huge. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I had a chapter on that because um, Cutler's experience at at Digital, where, of course, he was an acolyte and, and of Ken Olson. Ken Olson was this mammoth guy because, remember, until Olson comes along, computing is the is equivalent with IBM how does even the software industry start because there was no software industry so long as IBM gave all the software away for free and until the US government forces IBM to begin selling software and at a minimum verifying that Gene Omdahl's software would work on its mainframes there couldn't be a software industry. Nobody thought they were a software person. They were just working for a hardware company, basically. And so Cutler brings a whole different mentality. Um, the other thing was crashes. So in the PC world, I mean, if you talk to somebody and you still can, I, I kind of think of Steve Wozniak as the Joe Lewis of the software, of the computing field. You know, Joe ends up in Vegas as a door greeter. And Wozniak's a great guy, but a lot of people miss miss his real significance. You know, one day in the 80s, I heard Wozniak talking about how when he was 20, all he dreamed of was not buying a house, but was buying his own PDP computer because it costs like as much as a house. And he just thought, you know, if I could get my own PDP computer, I'd be happy. So he was aware of the level of robustness of the mini computer. And by contrast, the puny power of a personal computer, right, uh, at the time, in the earliest days especially. And so this idea that NT could could crash one program and have another one running. Um, what we thought of back then as multitasking was very, very important because big organizations wanted multitasking. You don't, you could reboot as an individual and maybe during that time you could get stoned or you might have a vision, 
You know, you might decide, you know what? I'm really a Native American. And, and while my computer is rebooting, I will sing, I will chant, or maybe hear a Buddhist bell. But, you know, with the, the mini computer, you couldn't have the whole organization go down. So Dave had a constant battle that Gates and, and the original, you know, the original Microsoft tribe understand what robustness meant. And um, in, in any case, and I think that that culture clash between the East and the West Coast and between, you know, young and older people uh, was part of the tension that was built into the story. So I, rather than the computer being the hero, in Showstopper, I tried to find an ensemble of characters that would move through time in the, in the project. And I'm really glad that, that the, the, there's a durable readership because it, it, was a bigger, it was a bigger ensemble than, say, the, the television show 30-something that was on at the same time. Or uh, another one you might be familiar with, The Big Chill. Um, I, you, you know, know I, 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 seven I, characters and you could stick with them because Dave Cutler was not cuddly. He was menacing. He could lose his temper a lot. And I tried not to get too close to him physically for that reason. He was very. And so there were there were there were a looming father figure. There was a double father figure. There was Gates. And then there was Cutler, and both of them loomed over you. And I think it did create a lot of anxiety. The, the other thing was I did include some uh, women in the project because there were women in the project, and it was they also had different, different stresses. So, um, but I do think that the stakes for Microsoft were so high, the fear of ending up as a mythical, you know, ending up as the mythical man month. Because Gates would keep coming to them and saying, do you need more people? And Cutler kept answering, we don't. That the more people will slow us down. Um, and so it really was a, um, a watershed to me in the history of computing up to that point. Uh, but it, it didn't presage where software or computing was going pretty clearly. It was more like the last battleship rather than the next frontier. I, I, well, I think it was, yeah. And I think it's just interesting this thing you mentioned about the East Coast, West Coast, because you know, you've got Tom Line here, actually, who was uh, son employee number eight and was definitely on the West Coast with a West Coast disposition, but also just looking, I think, perplexed at some of what the, 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 the PC vendors, Microsoft in particular, what passed for kind of a robust system. And I was actually, Tom, I don't know if you knew this, I did not realize this, that Gates was arguing against memory protection with Cutler. I mean, it, so Cutler is arguing in favor of memory protection. Um, and Gates is arguing against it, which is just shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the key differences between Sun and a bunch of contemporary startups is that we had a lot of people coming from Vax and mainframe worlds, where we we knew what robustness was all about, 
And a lot of people just had no clue coming coming from the homebrew world. See, I, I kind of don't understand this to some extent because Gates and Allen started out on a PDP ten running tops ten at Harvard, or, or at their their weird private high school had some like large PDP machine as well. I, it, it seems to me they were familiar with those concepts. It was just like the value of them just totally went over their heads or something. Yeah, they may have been presuming a lot of cost, which. That's right. Gates kept on hitting the uh, the performance uh, that that the performance was critical and above all else. And for those of you who are, and Greg, for those anyone who's not a domain expert, from our perspective, shipping an operating system without memory protection at an era when memory protection existed in the microprocessor is malpractice. Um, and we have had memory protection for a very long time in the microprocessor. And the, I mean, I had always viewed Bill Gates as robbing me of my childhood because I didn't know that you could run <laughs> multiple processes concurrently until I got to college. And, and you know, then as like I was getting older, I'm like, well, you know, my, my position on this was softening. I'm like, Bill Gates, you know, Bill Gates didn't personally rob me of my childhood. And then I go back and read Chostop. I'm like, actually, no, no, he did personally rob me of my childhood. Bill Gates <laughs> actually... I mean, this is like arguing against airbags because it's going to affect the zero to 60 of the car or the fuel economy of the car. It's like, okay, these are not really related. Not that much anyway. Like we can have airbags in a car that also has fuel economy or also has performance. Um, so that, I, there, there's, there's, there's definitely a hardware cost to MMUs. And it, it took a while for the microprocessor vendors to get on board and realize that Unix really, really wanted those things. Well, the other thing that I thought was surprising, and, and Greg, maybe you can speak to this, because I didn't realize the personal vendetta that Cutler had against Unix in particular. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it's just amazing. It's, it feels like, and correct me if this is incorrect, but anger seems to be the, the fuel for Cutler. Anger and resentment seem to really form a lot of his motivation. Anger, and he is so angry at Deck in particular. Is that a fair read? Well, I think you know, I tried to put it that conflict was at the heart of the concept of innovation and advance in Microsoft at that time. And I think that um, the more cooperative corporate approaches um, in the East were um, seen as um, too, you know, too free of conflict. And so that, that, that's one thing is that, again, it's very difficult for people today who are, I was born the same year as Gates, the same year as Jobs. Uh, Mitch Kapoor, his mother was my Hebrew teacher in Long Island. <laughs> that's I mean, awesome. Yeah, he's a couple of few years older than me. The point is, you cannot realize that these folks were dismissed and, um, sometimes humiliated by mainstream big iron people of the 60s and 70s. I mean, after all, we had put somebody on the moon and we had seen photo, you know, movies coming back, video streams. This had all been done with computers. And um, it seemed like the PC was a toy and that people weren't serious who were doing it. The other thing was the individual-centric um, value. You know, Gates, even in 1995 in the road ahead, uh, the road ahead doesn't include the internet. He doesn't mention the internet. He doesn't, he sees computing like many of his contemporaries as an individual experience. 
And it's a mind amplifier in the main. They're very caught up with this idea that personal computers are tools for liberation and that the individual would realize themselves in some way through uh, hacking around with, with computers. And, and you know, I, I have another book that I was working on at the same time on, on Vannevar Bush, uh, the author of As We May Think, and his concepts of associative trails and uh, mind amplification, his concept of memex, memory extender. Well, and the originator people... of the hyperlink idea, right? Exactly, I mean, that was right. his whole yes. thing. Yeah, and Ted Nelson gives him all this credit in the mid-70s. So we have to remember that computers were, you know, on the West Coast were seen as extensions of your creativity and a tool for liberation. And for a long time, that dominated the horizons. And so organizations were a lower priority for um, the um, Microsoft and Apple and, and others of that era. Um, Can you square that with the NT effort? I mean, the NT effort does not feel like it's on a path to self-actualization. I mean, at no time did I have the urge to get stoned while reading about the NT development process. No, no, but you're, you're right, though, the, because um, as the field is changing and as computers become more central to organizations and personal computers, the um, need for many of the traits of this older corporate computing world. And, I'm, and by corporate, I mean that you didn't have your own computer. You Right, more industrial. It. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you accessed it. You know, there was a collision and an attempt to transform uh, personal computing into something that, that again happened. I mean, it's very interesting that 10 years later, 2005, Gates and Bomber don't want to do cloud computing. Who's going to want to put their stuff in the cloud? Everybody wanted to control their own stuff. Isn't there privacy things? Don't you just want to put it on a disk drive? Blah, blah, blah. And yet it's astonishing that cloud computing is the apotheosis of corporate collective computing. And we have, again, found that computing is really a collective technology, a collective experience. And so if Microsoft wanted to participate in that, if Apple wanted to participate in that, they had to come to grips with that. And I think NT looking now, you know, 20, it's 27 years since I, I, worked, I wrote that book. That is a major transition. It, that, it, it's interesting that, I mean, in your book, uh, you mentioned how enamored they were with email. As, as a core part of their business activities to, to then also still have that individual view of the computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. No, and you, you do get some of this disposition towards the end when they want to test a chat program. Uh, what was the name of the chat program they wanted to... And, and Cutler goes... WinChat. Uh, WinChat, Win which Cutler views as basically like solitaire. I mean, this is like a complete waste of time. Um, I, I, I wonder if, like, maybe it behind the scenes of Microsoft, did Cutler take out his anger on Microsoft Teams? Is this why te does Teams reflect this worldview? Maybe <laughs> that's messed up. Sure, feels like it. It does. Yeah, but but that was very like it, 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 you know where I think that 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 kind of that tension between collaborative computing, networked computing, and 
and truly personalized computing. Because Tom, you were on the other end of that at the Sun with the network being the computer and really right, right. really thinking about only in terms of the network first. Yeah, look at the difference between Sunray and PCs. Totally. Diametric boast. Like if you go back to the original Unix paper where Dennis Ritchie talks about how they came to realize that the essence of remote access time-sharing computers wasn't just a you know, type programs in on terminals, it was close collaboration. I mean, Unix was an experiment in collaboration, and it sounds like NT was the antithesis of that, which I find so bizarre because, you know, if you look at the systems that Cutler did before that, there was RSX11M for the PDP-11, which was basically a real-time system, okay, but they didn't have VMS for the VAX, and VMS was very, it was a time-sharing system very much in the same lines as Unix, and yet he was, like, so opposed to Unix, and by the way, that attitude carries forward to Microsoft these today. You know, like on my last project at Google, we had a, a, some folks who were former Microsoft people, and they would they would very much look down the bridge of their nose at Unix and Linux and be like, huh, you know, the undesigned academic system that just sort of like, gee, how did that ever you know, succeed? And it, it, I always found that very, very interesting. Oh, so, Dan, this is very interesting. Have you read the book? Because you've not read the book super recently, right? I mean, it's been a couple of years since you read the book. It's been a couple of years. I, it, so, so what you just described is exactly like almost word for word what Greg describes as Cutler's attitude towards Unix as a bunch of PhDs that are, it's not actually designed. Yeah. And, you know, like read a byte, read a byte, read a byte, byte, byte thing. I mean, which is very clever, by the way. I just want to point that out. But, you know, it's, 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 like that attitude has carried forward, you know, into the modern era, like 30 years after the development of NT, you know, like those guys still. And I, I find that fascinating because we as sort of Unix people, you know, it's kind of the opposite. Like, kind of Absolutely the opposite. And it's also like learning that like, what do you mean there's an anti-penicillin demographic? That yeah, doesn't yeah. even make yeah. sense. <laughs> it's like, this is the anti-vaxxer well, well, crowd of it, computer design. You, 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 can, you, it is. you can forgive, you, you can forgive Cutler though, because... Unix pretty much stole the thunder out of VMS by the time the 80s were over. Well, but, but I mean, the, you know, like... The beginning of the 80s, it was all VMS. But they were, they were kind of too late, right? I mean, you know, Unix had been out of the bag and then universities for, you know, five, six years by the time they even started development on VMS. So... Well, I, no, VAX... You know, the, the VAX was 1978 and, like, 6th edition Unix was yeah. 74 or something. I mean, you know, they, they were... Yeah, but not not really. You know, it didn't really get going until seventy nine. Well, I, I mean, you would definitely have, you you know way more about the history of that than I do, but for sure. And, uh, so, Greg, one question I wanted to ask you, just because you do have how many interviews did you conduct? You taught. You must have spoken with so many people. And how did you ask? Because you clearly are speaking to like family members. So are you talking to these engineers, being like, "Hey, like you seem interesting, but I actually I need to talk to like you know your husband or your mother or your." I mean, how how were you having these interviews with the the family members? Uh oh, is, is am I gone or is Greg? Uh, you're still here. All right, Greg must be gone. Oh dear. Oh dear. We're gonna try to clean it all up in post. <laughs> <laughs> but those are so Jasmine I, I, I am really eager to get your take on this book at some point just because I feel like it almost is that other extreme where I mean and there are I mean I wonder how many 
uh, relationships were adversely affected by publishing the book because there there are some people whose work behavior um, is, and I can see Greg is trying to reconnect, the, but they're um, Mark Lukowski in particular, who is honestly just not a very pleasant person to, does not sound very pleasant at all. And his wife, who Greg interviews, says if he acted this way at home, I would divorce him. Which, I mean, it tells you that like, you just wonder how many people had spouses that read this book and be like, Hey, you know, I read this book and you're kind of an asshole at work. Like what is going on? Sounds like my drill instructors. Oh, interesting. Well, and that can be like a positive or a negative, right? Like they called my father Darth Vader at work, you know, like that's rude, but at work, it was the thing that had him moving up the corporate food chain, you know, and eventually becoming sort of, chief technologist, whatever the heck he was there. And I think that's another big difference between when Soul of a New Machine came out and when Showstoppers came out is the gender politics really started to change. So like with the, you know, Hardy Boys and the Whiz Kids, it was all, you know, people's partners were primarily women yeah. with the exception of Betty Shanahan, the only woman who was an active coder on that project. And one of the things I put up on Twitter recently was like there was an awards banquet where the Eagle gave out awards theoretically from itself to the long suffering partners of all of the people that worked on the project. My mom got one for like, you know, the solo nights at home. And Betty Shanahan's husband actually got an award for having to do his own laundry. Like, what kind of a world oh was that? You know what I mean? Oh, my God. I was 10 years old, and it's horrifying now, but, like, but there, there was sort of a, a, a madman almost uh, affect to it, whereas showstoppers, you know, you, you get the hoppers coming in and really holding up a, a mirror to some of this really inappropriate behavior by a bunch of the guys in the book. But I got so many questions. Like, so Betty Shanahan's husband, was he like, you know, thank, we, thank you for someone recognizing me for doing my own laundry. I would also like an, an award for wiping my own ass. I mean, it's like, I, I, like, <laughs> l- l- like, I mean, I hope that he was just like, this is offensive. I mean, I... He is not on record. And, you know, Shanahan's been really outspoken for, I think she was working with like IEEE to help, you know, find better positions for women in, you know, engineering, computing, et cetera, et cetera. She's gone in a really amazing, interesting direction. Um, but yeah, who knows about Shanahan's husband? I'll go look that up. And can you speak a little bit to telling her story? Because you've got a great blog entry where you told her story and kind of, it, it, and it, which we're obviously going to link to, but how, how did you kind of come across that and tell her story? Um, well, it actually, you know, you guys were talking about the space program and, you know, a lot of people talk about the women who did a lot of the programming in some of the early space programming stuff, you know, back when a computer was a woman, basically. And, you know, Shanahan was a young woman who got hired, I believe it was right out of college. And, you know, you can look at the pictures from the early, um, you know, Eagle projects. She was the only woman on either team. And, you know, these two teams pitted against each other forms the, the core conflict of this book and, you know, a race against time. And, you know, this was kind of like bell bottoms and long hair. But like, you know, the guys were all sort of guy guys and so we didn't even have almost at the time you know women have to be twice as good to be 
considered half as good. Fortunately, this isn't difficult. Like that wasn't even in the zeitgeist quite yet. It was more like keep your head down. And I believe the award she got was like putting up with a bunch of creepy dudes. Oh my basically. God. Oh my Which, God. Seriously. God, again, so but like she, you know, was a really active person in that project, but I don't believe, and I may be wrong about this. It's been a while since I was looking this up. I don't think she stayed at data general, you know, and of course data general, you know, dg.com is now the dollar general website, not the data general website. So <laughs> I, I have to go look things up that. on the internet archive. Oh, I know. It's so sad. Like, it's like, why it was like Tom at dg.com. Right. Right. It's like, could it, it could have been anyone other than dollar general. Just can we just, <sighs> can, can, can DG have a little death with dignity, please? Um, <sighs> Well, so that, and I have to tell you, one thing that I found myself doing over and over and over again in this book is, and and when I was talking to Greg about, like, you know, he's like, what would a kind of an update look like? One of the things that I want to know is what happened to these folks. And Jasmine, I'll tell you that there are there are a, a bunch of women that are are interviewed in the book, both as engineers and spouses, but a lot as engineers. And sure. googling them, they are broadly no longer engineers, which is really troubling. You know, they they are. You now, this is true. I would say. Of the male engineers, too, unfortunately. I mean, one of the things that I – one of the, the side effects of having run this project this way is that clearly it burned people out. Um, and they, they left engineering altogether. And yeah, what, Brian? What, what, one thing I might point to is the character Joanne Caron. So Joanne, who was from yeah. Montreal and bilingual, was the most prominent uh, woman – on the project that I encountered. And she, you know, again, saw her uh, challenge as an individual one because it was the early 90s. And now she might have viewed it as more collective. She had a nickname, Karate Kid. She was very tough and won the respect. Interestingly, Cutler let her use his off. Oh, you're breaking up a little bit. Get better reception. We're hanging on every word. Time, and that got people to meet her. Oh, okay, I'll try. But so Joanne Caron is uh, someone we might try to figure out what, what happened to her. Uh, Greg, could you just repeat um, that the, anecdote? You were breaking up while you – after Karate well, Kid, you were breaking well, up a bit. Oh, okay. Well – and there's a chapter that I open with Joanne Caron that's the Death March ch chapter. And at the, in the early 90s, a woman of high attainment tried to do the opposite of today. Today, young women are seeking solidarity and form alliances with other women. And back then, that was not how successful women in science and technology tended to respond to their challenges. Are yeah, you following me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so from the vantage point of today, you see very few women and the women are, um, you know, in Nietzschean terms, they're ubermensch. They're, they've, they're transcending their problems. They're not. And so, they're riding above them. And so she was a very prominent character. And I think I tried to 
um, describe how she responded to the challenges rather than uh, the sociological. Yeah, I know it was very interesting. And so maybe you could say uh, one of the things I was asking you about that you, I think we kind of lost you on the you did so many interviews with people's families. How did you approach them? How did you? Because I think Joanne, too, you, you spoke with her family. I thought it was really interesting. Well, unlike, I think, um, Kidder's book, where he was embedded and a fly on the wall the whole time. And one thing that does, he's, he's always very sympathetic to the people he's writing about. And part of it is he's part of the situation. I had to both reconstruct as well as observe in real time. And what you find when you do reconstructions is um, people don't want to tell you what actually happened. It's all Rashomon. (laughs) Yeah, they may be embarrassed or they may want to put present it in a different light. And so often their families would be uh, or close friends would remember it differently and shed a different perspective. So with me, the, the challenge of using reconstruction techniques as well as observing in real time, that meant that I couldn't do the hermetically sealed fly on the wall that Kidder did. You know, and, and it does have shortcomings because, um, you know, again, since the computer is the main character, you learn nothing about data general really in the book. You don't learn whether it's going to survive or where this fits in, in anything. But with, by, by the time I was doing it, that landscape was, was important. Um, the, the other thing I want to say was that Cutler got to bring a group of people to Microsoft from digital it was kind of a new lease on life for him. He was transplanting, and then they got a space of their own. They were separated in a different building. So the attraction for Cutler was he got to run his own show on his own terms with a, with a, a mothership that was clearly on the rise. And while Ken Olson is not alive now, to answer any questions. You know, Ken Olson, are you still guys with me? Yeah. Uh, Ken Olson was like the LBJ of the computer industry. <laughs> you know, he's waist deep in the big money. Right? And the big fool keeps pushing them on. So, you know, it was, hey, uh, one way or another, we're going to defeat personal computing. And, you know, we're just seeing what's going on in Afghanistan, right? Delusion, denial. And dumb. And, and Olsen sadly ends up in that same situation. So Cutler was trying to free himself from that. And yet he never really, um, you know, he didn't understand the roots of, you know, Gates is a college dropout. Paul Allen was not even a college dropout. Steve Ballmer didn't know anything about computing or software. Um, you know, so that you had... You know, Paul Moritz came from Intel. He knew something about microprocessors. So, you, you know, it's a very different environment that he's in, but it's a fresh start. They have resources. 
they were getting stock options that were enormously valuable quickly. I mean, that was underpinning the psychology of the team. I'd have to go back to see the details, but many of the frontline programmers were getting a million dollars by the end of the project in their stock options. And so they were financially rewarded. Uh, to and how, how much does that factor uh, into their calculus? Because I think that, you know, one of the things that is, you know, whether it is Kidder taking a kind of literary license or not, the, you know, one of the, to me, one of the kind of the themes of soul is that the team is persevering for one another. And I, you don't get that really sense of camaraderie. Yeah, oh, it's like, no. no, no, no. You know, again, whether this was myth or reality, it was very much a part of the button-down culture of the Cambridge area. You know, after all, I, I spent a great deal more time writing a biography of Vannevar Bush, who was out of Massachusetts. And that Massachusetts, that Boston area culture was very status-oriented um, and, and quite restrained. Um, you go out to the West Coast and at Microsoft, there were people that were just good code writers. And that guy, Steve Wood, in the book, he was a, a hotshot. He was somebody that fixed up, solved problems. Nobody asked anybody where they went to college at Microsoft in that team. Um, and so I think you just, you just had um, a different environment where individuals mattered a lot um and they were really like you know more more uh contemporary you know doris goodwin's team of rivals they weren't trying to like each other <laughs> they weren't trying to become and hence the, the 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 threats they, of violence they were hot right. shots and it was a cult of the hot shot and also the bug fixers were a, a, sta- a second level status so hey, you delivered code, it worked under different circumstances, you were happy, and you didn't have to fix up your mess. It was not like today. So you, you know, and I, I, I just think when I read, uh, you know, that corporate approach is just not like um, now. There was one guy on the team, by the way, that I was unaware of, um, and he might have been one of the very few uh, black people on the team. He was Patrick Awua, who uh, I would meet in Ghana in early 2000s because he left Microsoft to form a university, somewhat inspired by uh, Bill Gates. Aseshi is the university. But the, the team was a lot of people like Cutler who saw themselves as renegades as rebels, as difficult people. <laughs> the cult of the hero programmer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, most definitely. And I was swept up in that. You know, there's one metaphor I use where I say it's like hitting a baseball. You know, again, if you're from big companies, they want to be able to circumscribe what's a top performer? What are their traits? Well, nobody had any idea why somebody was a better programmer than we somebody still, else in that sense. We still don't if it's of any consolation. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, and, and I, I believe that. It's, it's, 
one of the majesty of, of code writing and the mystery of it, that there's such a wide range of performance and often from the same educational route. And so there was something about that heroic, these heroic code warriors that, you know, were doing their best, fighting the good fight. Um, you know, but, but the team itself was large and fractious. And, um, you know, that made, it, that made it more difficult when the book came out because a lot of people within the team were... Yeah, so what was the reaction? Yeah, yeah. For instance, the, the NT, well, the NT team had, an, a, had a um, reunion not too many years, you know, 25. Oh, I wasn't invited. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> they, they, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. I wasn't invited at all. Two things happened, though. One is I went to Africa and lived there in the early 2000s pretty much continuously. I married an African and I'm in Accra, Ghana, and Paul Moritz shows up. And Paul is born in Africa, and we rediscovered ourselves. And Paul, being the head of the uh, project um, organizationally, we became good friends. We got involved in a lot of um, efforts to essentially uh, elevate and energize and educate um computer scientists and programmers in East and West Africa. And we have some modest projects even now. And that did um, give me some glimpse into um, some members of the team who had assisted me a lot and, and others um, who, who didn't, but um, it, it, it was nice for that reason. Um, Cutler, I believe, Part of his legend was enhanced. You know, he has won many awards in recent years, and um, he still has an office in Microsoft. And he seems to maintain his um, personal style um, oh, through 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 the years. But part of what I was just going to say is that um, it was I didn't see myself as someone seeking anyone's approval within the team and i it was kind of an over my dead body situation where um i was you know because these companies had gotten much richer and and remember sold the new machine was very flattering to the company and its practitioner and its its participants but by the mid 90s that boat wasn't going to float anymore. These were not faintly engineers that were suppressing their desires for fame and fortune. That boat was not floating anymore. You know, as we would learn, they were criminals part-time. And Steve Jobs backdated stock options in violation of clear federal laws. Bill Gates repeatedly stole things. Uh, people at Microsoft would routinely invite you up for a meeting and say, we'd like to buy your company. So we're thinking about it. Show us your stuff. You'd never hear from them again. And they would actually make a rival product. That's a world that is much worse 
than selling out to Google, the world of today, or selling out to Facebook. And, and Greg, how did, you, how did they let you in the door? Like, how, how did, what was the pitch that let me? We had more leverage okay. then. Okay. We had more leverage then. And what you have to understand is the hobbyists, the individuals, the geeks, they were running out of market. And for Gates, especially in Microsoft, they felt that corporate business was important. And, you know, so I was a staff writer for the Wall Street Journal assigned to cover Microsoft, as well as at the same time I was covering Apple and and other companies. And because of my bent and my background, my temperament and background, I was interested in money and power. So these were vehicles to achieve money and power. Now, I must say, intellectually, software is very, very uh, captivating uh, as uh, both uh, from the creation side and the conceptualization, meaning the, the creating code, but the architecture, the conceptualization of it. Um, and I think that we now live in a world where you know, some years ago in IEEE, I wrote an essay calling software the invisible technology. And because it's everywhere. And where we used to relate to programs, we now relate to services, but those services are animated and defined by programs. Um, Amazon's environment is a piece of software. They don't say we're a software company. Um, you know, so so you you just have this. I think there needs to be a greater literature of software. I thought that Eric Raymond, the cathedral essay, oh boy, and that volume of essays was something that many others should try um, because we don't have enough literature about software, about the making of it, about its purpose, about its vulnerabilities, about um, you know, how uh, you build in values to into it. It's because um, our practitioners and, and are too embarrassed about it all. <laughs> you can say well, that again. I mean, well, and I, you I, start I, interrogating I, it and realizing people can make choices. Reading, reading, once the, you start thinking about it, reading, Ooh, reading the right. book, I, I definitely, right. there are a lot of uh, technological uh, and development values that I think that I share that you would see in these people. Like, you know, you've got to, shorten the feedback cycles to, to uh, from making changes to seeing if they work and everybody should be running the software and using it as much as they can while they're also working on it. Things like that are very important and, and a focus on correctness and quality, but then just the, the, the mercenary nature of the specific organization and the, and the, the catastrophic level to which the whole miniature society seemed to be based chiefly around shouting. I mean, uh, was, was, and abuse, I mean, is, is also, interesting. Just the, the, the totally bizarre devotion to this, like, pecking order, pecking order hierarchy, with even within the engineering ranks, you know, this idea that coders don't have to test their own stuff. Oh, God. It's like, well, we have, we have like, these second stringers to go do that. I mean, it's just like the Bush League people who couldn't make it as real, you know, engineers. They're going to go test your code for you. Don't worry about it. You just write great software. It's like, well, I mean, my God, you know, like, we don't, we don't do that anymore. But I can totally remember yeah, in the nineties that, that, that there is a evolution that might be charted, you know, and 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 there's a there's a I, I would encourage people to try to write more about um, 
how software is created and how this is. Well, and what you know, exactly it's so happened? funny. Sorry, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I was just just a total aside, but it's so funny you say that because the first startup I ever worked at in 1999 was a fail.com. And we had one of these death march projects that, you know, ran the entire team into the ground and a hundred percent turnover and the development organization over the, over 12 months. And, you know, I remember at one point telling the CTO, this isn't how you write software. And the guy looks at me and says, we're not here to write software. We're here to run a business. And it's like, yeah, but your business is totally defined by the software that we write. It didn't make any sense. Right. There, by the way, to, to, the, to the group of you, I told this to Brian uh, as an aside, I wrote and partly directed a film called Code Rush about the last effort by Netscape. It was aired by PBS in 98 or 99, and that's a, the, the director, uh, David Winton, had read Showstopper, and that was a, that's a different take on, and a little later take, it was their their release the first time they released a free browser, I, uh, the Mozilla maybe. Yeah, with, with I remember Swift watching that. I yeah, saw that film. Yeah, called Code Rush, and I'm in it a little bit, but I actually wrote it and kind of created the structure for how Dave went about his filming. So, but then I lost, you know, I got off track. Um, but I'm very very interested in trying to. Uh, you know, to, to reach the public more about the importance of software, um, what's the life of the code writer, and how it's changed over Well, so I'll tell you that one way in which it's changed, a very big way that it's changed um, since the book was written, is the rise of open source. So even, you know, in, in, you know we're at a company where we're, we're taking a pretty from scratch approach, and we still use yeah. lots and lots and lots and lots of software that was written years ago, decades ago, multiple decades ago. Um, and we, the, the software, one of the peculiar aspects of software is that it's able to persist in perpetuity. There's no cost of actually, of, I mean, we talk right. about software maintenance, but you don't need to ma maintain software any more than you have needed to maintain Showstopper. It is it, it, that once you've written software, it's written, and someone else can build on top right. of it. And that's what Microsoft wasn't doing at all. And to a certain degree, that's part of why what you've chronicled is the kind of this last in like the siege mentality, software where we are going to write the whole thing we are going to do it come hell or high water we are and then and no artifacts of this are going to be open sourced so by the way anyone who if we fail if we're canceled someone else is going to have to start over again and and right that doesn't right. really exist anymore in a ways that are really important i mean I, and you know tom is here talking and you can correct me if he disagrees but AWS is not possible without open source. Google is not possible without open source. Netflix is not possible without open source. They literally could not build these companies if they were building them on proprietary software. Um, so that is a very, very, and that and the internet and, and distributed source code control are three like absolute mega trends that, that completely yes. change software development in the decade after the book is written. I, mm -hmm. one, a comment, yeah. Justin, I want to get back to your comment. You had a, a, just a quick comment in there that people can make choices. What did you mean by that? Well, the whole deal, I mean, 
for, I teach novice users now mostly how to use computers, right? That's like what I do for a job. I'm a librarian. I had to choose between tech and librarianship and there's more women in librarianship and people are nicer. So I just Sorry. moved on and <laughs> no, no worries. But like, I no, I just, I worked in tech. I worked for an internet service provider in Seattle in the nineties and uh, I liked it, but I just, I'm a service oriented person, you know? And so I work with a lot of people who are struggling with technology and they take, you know, software as a given, right? That they just have to kind of figure it out. And, you know, one of the things that's very effective to me in my work is being like, no, 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 somebody chose that. And yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's hard for you. Let's figure out how to make it work for you. But the reason all those little triangles on Facebook are so hard to click is because the average age of somebody that works at Facebook is 30 or 31 and they don't wear glasses. They've got perfect mm -hmm. vision and their hands don't shake. Those could be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, on Facebook on mobile is what I tell a lot of sort of older users to use if they have mobile devices, because it's easier to poke than it is to click on a tiny target that is very hard to see and or manipulate. And all of those are choices, every single one of them. And it can help novice users with agency, you know, feeling that they have a little bit more control over their situation if they can understand the why. And, you know, I also yeah. work with a lot of accessibility topics. I, you know, help print disabled users get access to eBooks and, oh my gosh, that's a journey. And part of it is because, you know, the accessibility market in many cases isn't huge. You don't make a lot of extra money making your software, you know, 2% different so that, you know, blind users, print disabled users, deaf users can interact with it. You know, the market drives so much of that. The, the but mass it's market. very important. Right, exactly. The mass market. And it's very important to understand that, again, outside of the government and, uh, you know, libraries need to make our stuff accessible for legal reasons in addition to just ethic reasons. It's important to understand that human beings are making choices. And if that's not accessible, somebody either made a decision because of, you know, mass market or they made a mm -hmm. anti-decision by not thinking about this uh, group of users and you need to understand that in order to understand how to affect it and how to improve it, both for users and as well as future users, right? Because at least when I bought Microsoft Word out of the box, when there was a box, it was what it was, but it wasn't going to change on you, yeah, you know, or not quickly. Yeah. And it's a really different environment for people in the, you know, in the mobile world, dealing with browsers that update. I mean... We saw that wacky Chrome update, right, where they changed a thing with how JavaScript worked and how suddenly, you know, the websites you didn't have to maintain maybe broke. People made choices about that and they can unmake them. But, you know, in order to make the world as just and as fair and as ethical as you want it to in a world that is moved primarily online and digital, you have to understand that there's humans behind the software that you can influence in order to make the world the way you want it to be. I guess kind of long answer, short question. No, that's I a great I feel, like, I feel like the anthropology of software is something that we don't really address very broadly or very often. Well, and I think well yeah, and it's all anthropology, right? Because <laughs> right. it's all made by people. And, and AI, I think we talk about it the most oh, in God. the AI environment. Oh, God. Right? Right? Why can't your camera see... 
you know, huge swaths of people. Oh, because you didn't test on any of those. Why? Because, oh, you don't have any friends that are like that. Or, oh, because we tested our, you know, neural net on Wikipedia because it's free instead of an actual corpus of how people, you know, talk and interact in a lot more different spaces, not just the sort of young men of Wikipedia spaces, well, right? It, 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 Complicated. Just, yeah, I think you're making such a good point, and because getting to that, that, that point about agency, and, and Greg, to your point about kind of this, this software being this kind of invis- this invisible machine that people can't see, because Justin, what you're really trying to do is, is connect people to the decisions that have been made that affect them. And one of the things, just in terms of that point of agency, I, I'm, not, I'm not being euphemistic. I really did not know about memory protection until I got to college. And I was upset because I thought about the number, the number of times that I lost work, the number of times, and, and we don't live in this era now, thank God, where your machine would just reset when, and you would literally lose work. You could lose hours of work. And I remember communicating this to my mom and like, mom, I've got a very important message for you. Like when the computer reboots, it's not your fault. It's because we don't have, we actually have the technology. We have airbags, we have seatbelts and we're not deploying them. And I know for her that really, that gave her agency to know that like, no, this is a bug somewhere that someone needs to, to go fix. And it, I did find it galling when you have Gates arguing against memory protection. Because, Jasmine, this is, the, this is your person at the other end who is about to make a decision that is going to affect lots and lots and lots and lots of people's lives. But they're not connected to that at all. And it's Well, and I, I always ask, like, when I'm dealing with something with software that seems counterintuitive to me, what was the problem the person who was building this was trying to solve? Is it the same as a problem I would be having? Also, you know, thank you, open source world. Can I fix it? Right? Right. Like, is there a way that I, an end user, can do something that will make the thing I don't want different? Whereas with you, memory protection, whatever that is, um, you know, it seems like... <laughs> seems like you're upset about it anyway. <laughs> well, but it also seems like you did not, you couldn't fix it because of the way software used to be, right? Yeah, I mean, so in, in just to, to describe it very briefly, it, it, this is the thing that would protect one application from destroying another. And a single, before this was deployed, and this is what Cutler and Gates are arguing about in the book, before this is deployed, one bad mm. application would cause the computer to reboot. And it was really, really, really frustrating. And so it, it's it's one of these things, it's like this, this total unseen detail that has all of these ramifications. And I do want, I mean, I, and Justin, I wonder with, with some of your accessibility, that some of the things you're working on with accessibility, does open source help address some of that because of its resilience? Or open source can't be killed. Open source. Oh my gosh, uh, totally. And I, you know, have a sort of caveat about this, but basically like people who use desktop computers, right? Desktop or laptop computers, you know, have access to tools, right? In a different way than people that use mobile devices, although Android is better on this. Um, You know, Apple is terrible. But like, you know, I tell people like, oh, you know, you can just block the ads in Firefox on your desktop. Or you can use this JavaScript plugin, you know, this Grease Monkey plugin for Firefox that'll do this or that. Or there's a whole bunch of plugins for basically all the browsers now in a desktop environment that you can use to manipulate. And maybe you can't code. I can't code. But I can use somebody else's code so that I don't have to see, you know, who to follow on Twitter because I don't like it. 
You know what I mean? It's like, oh, here's some, you know, young tech men you may not have heard of. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, Twitter, why? Why? Why with like, the men? Why with the young men, Twitter? Well, don't get me wrong. I love men. But like Twitter but come seems on. to think I am one, as near as I can tell. And 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 that I have affinity for a different group of users than I do. And so I just have a, you know, grease monkey script that means I don't see that because I don't want to see it. And it's not helpful for me. Um, but in the world of mobile... You know, we see so many people, or we did, you know, be like, rah, you know, everybody's using their phones now. We've solved the digital divide. We've solved the, you know, computers are expensive. We've solved all these problems. But what we really did was we gave over more control to the people who run our devices, where it's a lot harder to manipulate even Firefox, like on my phone, in order to make the online world go through a filter that makes it more appealing or palatable to me. And that can also include accessibility stuff, you know, making things easier to view, making things easier to touch, making things easier. Like my home button on my phone is broken because I've still got a phone that's old enough to have a button. And, you know, so I use an accessibility feature and now I've got one I can tap on my screen. I appreciate that, you know, but you have to know that that's possible. Know that it's within your grasp. Every time I talk about Grease Monkey scripts, the people I work with are like we're blah blah ginger this stuff and i'm like no 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 watch me do it and you know, we'll literally click through something on a screen it's like you click this and then you click that and then you click this anyone can do it even you let's get your ads off of yahoo mail because it's pernicious and we move forward you know and that's my question how do i help people move forward and open source really helps with that being able to get under the hood, the right to repair, the right to, you know, access code. Yeah. All of that helps us move forward. It doesn't just put us where someone else wants us to be. Yeah. That's, first of all, God bless you for making a far side reference in such passing. <laughs> the, I'm so happy Gary Larson is back. Oh, I, the, I feel like the, I mean, and I, at this point, like I'm definitely like a bullseye Xer, but I've worked with millennials for so long that I have purged like the far side references from my vocabulary. But the, I just love the fact that like the blah, blah, ginger reference and just like not waiting for anybody to get it or explain it. We're moving on, which is just, you know, God bless you. I actually made a far side reference because you, and yesterday, as recently as yesterday, because the uh, and Greg, this is where all this became very apropos. Interestingly enough, and Jessamyn, you saw this obviously yesterday as well, because I know uh, you had tweeted about it about the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of IE3. Like, okay, and a uh, not well thought out tweet storm by someone who worked there who was really trying to say. Uh, this was a special time for me, and uh, I... Sure, families fell apart, but we created great value for shareholders. <laughs> um, 80 hours a week and loving it. Yeah, <laughs> he really Brian, the mark. Brian, let me make one... This is a fascinating conversation, and I, I've never heard uh, from readers like this of, about Showstopper, and so I'd love to hear from more readers. Brian knows how to reach me. I'm just going to close with with one with one uh, thought and and then exit. But and and Jess has been fascinating to listen to as well. I, I'm very grateful for your interest in the book, and uh, I've learned a lot. And the service versus artifact. You know, the people on the NT team, they thought they were creating something like a sculpture. It was a thing, and they had to worry about where to get all the discs because they sent it out on disks, you know, and like 
um, the D, the data general computer, it was an artifact. And so the transformation of software from artifact into service is both fabulous and, and also scary because you, it changes all the time. It's not a thing anymore. And much of the premise of NT was it was a thing that had to be done, quote unquote, done by a certain date. And then it was released. And then you sat back and waited to hear how people liked it. And then after a period of time, you would have a new version. This is just a totally different world today. It, it is. And I would say that while things are broadly, I think, much better for families, software is a much better domain than the, I mean, I feel, uh, I mean, all of the folks that you captured, so many of them loved software and were more or less terrorized out of it, which is heartbreaking to me. Um, I think it's a much better domain. I do think that one, the dark, that darker side that still exists does exist now differently because in this service model, you get people that now need to attend to the software whenever and wherever it breaks. And it's not the, the kind of the crunch mode to ship a giant release, it is more I'm being, I keep being woken up over and over and over and over in the, over and over right. in the middle of the night to go address to a software bug that I didn't create. Yeah, um, it's the death march with no end. It is. <laughs> wow. Wow. I didn't think of that. It um, is. And, or at least it can be. Um, and yeah. I, I think that's part of what, you know, all of us are trying to have a world where that's, where that's not the case. But, the, but when you see that dark, dark side today, that's how you see it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Brian, for including me. And I really hope I hear from some of you individually. And because I, I'm also interested in why people continue to turn to Showstopper and find some value in it. Thanks so much to Brian and Adam for including me in this. I apologize for my technical difficulties. That well, you, you should t t take a page from Justin and you should not be blaming yourself. You should take some agency and know that Twitter spaces still has a lot of room for improvement. So don't blame yourself. Yeah, that's kind of you to say. And Brian and Adam, thank you so much. Fascinating community you've got. And I keep encouraging you to think of the literary aspects of software and to share with me because I think it's valuable for society and civilization, for our culture, because software really is the artistic side, you know, a lot of artistic, artisanal side to software. And uh, you guys are all participating in that. So thanks again for including me. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank yes, you. And I, and I think that, you know, that I think I, I can't think of a better kind of closing <laughs> remark than that one. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, this was uh, really appreciated. Uh, we will be we are trying to do this, uh, doing this Monday evenings I, uh, and a little more regularly. So hopefully we'll see everyone next Monday. But thank you very much. Well, I, and I, I see you next week. Thank you again. You Bye. bet. Take care. Bye. Bye.